right, open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. So why do we do ministry the way that we do? Why do we teach the Bible the way that we do? Why do we do evangelism the way that we do? Why do we have our view of the world, the world system, politics? Why do we teach the way that we do at Grace Baptist Church? Why, like our theme this year, uh, it is not ashamed. Why are we placing such an emphasis on the gospel and leading people to Christ as the backbone of what we do and then discipleship, training people in the Word of God and teaching them to teach other people the Word of God. Why do we do what we do? And I was thinking this past week, so we just did uh, Iran and Bible prophecy last week. And if you are newer to Grace Baptist Church, and isn't it wonderful that we're growing, get people all the time, we use these terms. You might not have any idea what we're talking about. So I think that just, you know, maybe on a yearly basis, we're going to define some of these things. And we're going to do that this morning. Dispensationalism, our interpretation of the Bible, informs our mission. The way that we interpret the Bible, that informs, that defines why we do what we do and also how we do it. So let's look at a couple of things. We believe the Bible. So as a Baptist church, the Bible is our sole authority. There's no outside organization. Um, I was watching a lady who was really doing a wonderful presentation on um, the modesty and, and women in the world, and her pastor is a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, what did I say? Her pastor? Her husband is a Presbyterian pastor. And um, there was a group that asked her to come speak, and she said, our section said, I can't go. So there's a group of churches that would define, and there's a leadership among that group of churches that would define what this pastor's wife was allowed to do. We don't have anything like that. We're an independent church, so Laura does whatever she wants to. <laughs> and it, it's just a, it's a, it's a different form. <laughs> that tickled me right there. It's a, it's a different form of church government. We, we have an autonomous body which means we're self-governing, but that doesn't mean we do whatever we want to do. It means that we have a higher authority, and that's just the Bible. Church creeds and confessions are helpful, but they don't define who we are. The Bible is our sole authority. So when it comes to our interpreting of the Bible, it starts with we believe it. We don't only believe the Bible, we actually believe what it says, Okay, so this is defining some of these terms for us. Every conservative evangelical church says this. Every, so by conservative, by conservative, we mean that the Bible is the word of God. We believe the gospel. And evangelical means that you, you believe the evangelion. That's the, that's the Greek word for the gospel. That you understand the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures, is the only way of salvation. That's it. That's what it means to be an evangelical. Every conservative evangelical church says they believe the Bible. I mean, Andy Stanley doesn't, but I don't suppose he's conservative evangelical anymore. So 
why then why do churches differ? How many of you know that there's a lot of different styles of teaching out there? A lot of different theological systems. Why do they differ? It's all based on interpretation. It's all based on interpretation. And one of the fun things about our approach is sometimes you'll you'll read a passage to somebody, they'll ask you a question, you'll take them to the Bible, and you'll read a passage. And they'll say, well, that's just your interpretation. My favorite answer is, all I did was read it. I didn't interpret it. I just read it. And the problem is, when people say that, their problem is, they don't like what the Bible says, so they need to find a way to change what it says. So just, I guess this is the example I always go to, you know, for 27 years here at Grace Baptist Church. The the best example of it is women preachers. How many of you know people who their, their churches have women preachers? Right? You know people that are like that. How many of you know people that really love the Lord, they're saved, who they have churches with women preachers? Right? Um, and yet, the Bible says that you're not supposed to have women preachers. Look at first, let's, let's look at it. First Timothy. This is our first rabbit trail of the day. First Timothy. Other than politics and the Lord's Supper, this is probably the part of our ministry that I've had the most pushback on, not from church people, but from people who visit. So, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer, that means allow, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, usurp, that might be a hard word. It just means to take power over. So how many of you can understand that passage? How many of you can understand it? Then why would a church ever have a woman preaching and teaching? So my first Sunday here at Grace Baptist, as pastor, a woman taught the adult Sunday school class. That was my first Sunday here. Somebody had let some stuff slip. Amen? And praise God, it's never happened since. Why? Because we just believe the Bible. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The Bible says that in the you have to have two or three witnesses for the thing to be established, and God always does that in Scripture. First Corinthians chapter 14, look at verse 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. So that's not talking about, you know, a question and answer time or whatever. That's talking about teaching in the church. Women are not supposed to teach men in the church. It's fine for women to teach women. As a matter of fact, that's a command of Scripture. Older women are supposed to teach the younger women. That's a command of Scripture. And so this is just an example. Because the Bible is our sole authority, I don't look at First Timothy 2 where it says, let the women learn in silence. 
Uh, Suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority of the man. We don't look at that passage and say, well, that was just cultural. That was just for the people of that day. So you understand that you can explain away every passage of Scripture that way. How many of you know the Bible is written in the past? Right? So you, so you can use that tool to explain away every passage of Scripture. That's not who we are. We, we believe the Bible. Every conservative evangelical church says they do. Then why do some churches have women pastors and other churches say that will never happen? It's all based on interpretation. And our interpretation is, how do you read and understand the Bible? That's what interpretation is. Our interpretation, what about us? We interpret the Bible dispensationally. What does that mean? Dispensationalism teaches, well, let me just keep going here. Scripture affirms a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of the Bible. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But let me just say this. I want you all to memorize this and, and so that you can repeat it, okay? What we believe about the Bible... We believe because it's what the Bible says about the Bible. Okay, can we do that again? What we believe about the Bible, we believe because it's what the Bible says about the Bible. Okay, can we all try that? What we believe about the Bible, we believe because it's what the Bible says about the Bible. Can we try that again? What we believe about the Bible, we believe because it's what the Bible says about the Bible. The Bible is our sole authority. This, it, it's not me, it's not you, it's not somebody outside, it's not some radio preacher, it's not where I went to college, it's not the books that we read other than the Bible. The Bible is our sole authority. What we believe about the Bible, we believe because it's what the Bible says about the Bible. That's, that's where we get it. So, Scripture, the Bible itself, affirms a literal. What does that mean? The words just mean, when the Bible says woman, what do you think that means? When the Bible says silence, what do you think that means? How many of you have a hard time understanding that? My dad would say you have to go to school to be taught how not to understand that. Right? Just ask now, what is a woman? Isn't that weird? Isn't that interesting? How the, the battles that they were having in the Bible, in Bible times, the Bible says, hey, guys, don't look like a woman. Hey, women, don't look like men. Why? Because that's what paganism does. That's what paganism does. And our culture is returning to paganism. That paganism is finding its way into Christianity. How many of you have seen that issue where Alistair Begg, he's a good Bible preacher, he was asked, would you attend a family member's transgender wedding? And he said, yes. Well, what you're doing when you do that is you're endorsing, you're endorsing a, a profoundly unbiblical and pagan celebration. Would you go to a birthday party? Yeah, because the Bible doesn't say anything about birthdays and birthday parties. It just doesn't matter. Every, how many of you have a birthday? Right? So that's not, and you're not changing your birthday. So my birthday's May 6th. All right? What if I said one day, well, actually, I was born January 1st. Okay. Celebrating a birthday is not the same thing as celebrating a marriage in a a perverted way. 
So what's happening, because people remove are removed from literally believing what the words say, man, woman, God created male and female, created he them. There's only two. So if you move away from the literal interpretation of the scriptures, that affects how you deal with society. That affects how you deal in social issues. So why do we do what we do? Why do we believe what we believe? We believe the words mean what they say. All right? So a literal grammatical. So you look at the text, you look at the grammar of the text, and you don't change it. It says what it says. And then historical. How would the people in the time that the Bible writer wrote that down, how would they have understood it? What was going on in the world? When the Bible uses this word at this time, what did it mean to those people? Okay? So, Scripture affirms a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of the Bible. If you believe that, you will believe a dispensationalist. Uh, You will believe the Bible dispensationally. You'll be a dispensationalist. The Bible uses the word dispensation four times. And it's a dispensing. It's a dispensing. The idea of dispensationalism is that God gave different information at different times. And so God told Israel to kill animals and bring the blood to the temple. He doesn't tell us to do that. Right? Perfect illustration of it. Was it right for them to do that? Absolutely. Did that save them? Absolutely not. Does bringing a sacrifice in our day, save you. No. No. You might be here. You're a guest. You put a million dollars in the offering plate. Hallelujah. I pray that you do that. But it won't take you to heaven. It'll make you my best friend, but it won't take you to heaven. There's nothing you can give. There's nothing you can do to have eternal salvation except believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins, rose from the dead, proving that he was, is, and always will be God. If you'll believe that he paid your price, you'll confess your sin to him and believe in him, you'll be saved. Doesn't matter how much money you give. Doesn't matter what you do or don't do. It's a matter of whether or not you believe that and ask him to save you. That's a literal interpretation of the scriptures. All right? So... Let's break this down a little bit more. What does a literal interpretation mean? That is, whatever God meant is what the passage means. Here's here's how we mess that up. Let me tell you what this passage means to me. Well, what if you had never been born? Does the passage then have no meaning? Doesn't matter what it means to you. Here's what it's supposed to mean to you, what it means to God. I've had people say, I don't like that verse. Well, there's some verses in the Bible that honestly I don't like. How many of you know God didn't ask my opinion? Right? So, whatever God meant is what the passage means, not what it logically could mean. Now, that could possibly mean, or it could possibly mean, or not what I want it to mean. I can't... As a preacher, I can't change the Bible because I don't like what it says. How many of you have ever come across a passage that really gets in the way of your life? Right? I can't change the Bible to make it, want, to, to, to make it go along with my life. I'm supposed to get my life in line with the Bible. Brother Sexton, uh, the, the uh, pastor of the college, or the, the president of the college where I went, pastor of the church, he would say the preacher's job is to get people in line with God. That's pretty good. 
And the only way I can do that is through the preaching of the word. I can't come and live with you. How many of you are very thankful for that? Praise God. But the only way I can get you in line with God is to preach what God says, and the, what, not what I mean, but what, what God means. Not what I want it to mean, but what God means. Or not what it gra- grammatically might mean. Man, I'll tell you, so my job as I prepare sermons, I read commentaries, you would not believe what people do to the text. You wouldn't believe. Now, grammatically, if this is this, then it could be this. If this is that, then it could be that. Or it could just mean what it says. The passage, that is, whatever God meant is what the passage means. Not what it grammatically might mean, not what I want it to mean, not what it logically could mean, but what God determined it to mean, and it means what it says. So this this is where we are on this. And, of course, the world thinks this is crazy, but we don't care. We believe that God put his words into the prophet's mouth. So one of the things that always bothered me in my training was um, there is a view of inspiration. So inspiration is the way that God gave the Bible. The best verse on inspiration is Job 32.8, and it says, There is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth him understanding. So inspiration is it's, it's God giving his words through the Holy Spirit, through his breath. God giving his actual words to the prophets in the Bible, and those words were written down. All right? So we believe that it doesn't matter what the, what the person's personality was. Those words are exactly what God wanted them to have. I started to go down another road, but I'm not going to, for time's sake, do that. So here's what the Bible says about that. So this is Moses talking about a prophet that would come. We know now that that's Jesus. But this gives us a good definition of how God will work through prophets. Deuteronomy 18.18. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. So in our discipler training, our theme verse is, I would that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So when you are being discipled, your discipler will have their discipleship lessons. They'll come to a point from the book, and they'll make a statement, and they'll have you write that statement down. So when you come to this, say this. What are we doing? We're all speaking the same thing. We're not robots. We're not a cult. We're all saying the same thing about the truth so that there's not confusion. That same passage where it says that women are to keep silent in the church in 1 Corinthians 14, it says God is not the author of confusion. Confusion is where, well, I like to say it this way. I like to say it this way. I like, well, somewhere else you might be able to. Here at Grace Baptist, we're going to say the same thing. Okay? So that we can keep going in the same direction. 2 Peter 1.21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Those words they spoke, God put those words in his mouth. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Ghost, put those words in their mouth. So what they meant, what the prophet meant, is what they said. How many of you are getting this point right now? All right, yeah, pastor, we've got this. How many of you got it? Why doesn't everybody else have this? Why are there so many different types of teaching? Because of this. We just believe what they say. 
I'm not going to try and explain it away. We just believe what it says. Now, we have to understand it by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Scripture defines Scripture. How do we understand what that word means by the way it's used in the Bible? The Bible defines the Bible, all right? Why? Because what we believe about the Bible, we believe because it's what the Bible says about the Bible. That's how we understand it. So, what they said was the words God put in their mouths. And this is where the rubber meets the road. So, we read 2 Peter 1.21 a minute ago. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Here's the verse right before that. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Let me tell you what that passage means to me. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to have a private interpretation. God will give you the interpretation. So Abner Chow, he teaches at Master's Seminary. And I love this. I think he might be Chinese, a Chinese guy with Abner as his name. I like that. That's fun. And I I saw an interview with him on YouTube, and he made some really good statements about this subject. Some of them we've already read. But here's a direct quote from something that he said. And it's all of you uh, you, you grammarians, this is a run-on sentence, okay? But it's a really good sentence. So what, what was the intent of the writer? Because that's what people are always trying to discern, <laughs> determine. The, when you hear a, a court case, what was the intent of the founders? The intent of the founders was what they wrote. That, that's the intent. So here, what was the Bible writers, the prophets' intent? That intent, that literal reading, which is the, which is the author's intent is given to us because God perfectly superintended and moved the writers to speak in such a way that they wrote in normal language, so we have the normal rules of grammar in light of the facts of history, and that's what the Bible means. Normal language in the light of the facts of history. Why is this important? This is perfectly illustrated for us in Daniel chapter 2. So let's go to Daniel 2. Are y'all having fun this morning? I love this. So Daniel chapter 2 is salient for understanding God's plan in history. So remember, prophecy is God writing history before it happens. If God prophesies something, you might as well read it as history because it's going to happen. As a matter of fact, Daniel is one of the books of the Bible that is really challenged by critics because it's so precise. They say there's no way that Daniel could have written this when he is supposed to have written it because it is so precise about what is going to happen afterwards. That's just what our God can do. So Daniel chapter 2 is salient for understanding God's plan in history. So let's go to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, look under the chair in front of you. There's a Bible there. Look at the table of contents. Go to the book of Daniel. You're really going to need a Bible in front of you to to follow along. So Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. I love the way it says that. He couldn't sleep because of this dream. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. 
And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream. I dreamed a dream. Okay. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream. And my spirit was troubled to know the dream. So he has this dream. Have you ever woken up and you knew you had a bad dream, but you couldn't remember it? This troubled him so much, he really wanted to remember it. So he calls all of his magicians in. The king said, I have dreamed a dream, verse 3, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream, verse 4. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac. So from here, from this verse on until chapter 7, it's all written in Aramaic. So all of your Old Testament is in Hebrew. This is in a different language. This is Aramaic. It's like a Syrian language. They spake the, uh, then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Now, how many of you, honestly, could make up an interpretation if somebody gave you the dream? That's not any big thing. The king answered, said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If ye will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. That's a tough boss. This is not hyperbole. This is what he was going to do. Then, verse 6, But if ye show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation of it. I think the king is starting to understand something. He's got a bunch of frauds in front of him. The king answered, verse 8, and said, I know of a certainty that ye would gain the time. You're stalling because ye see the thing is gone from me. But if ye will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. Wow. Hold your place right here. This king, hold your place, go to Psalm 47. I want you to see something. How many of you think this king is a pretty rough dude? He's serious. He's not messing around. He's going to chop these people up, make their houses dunghill. So look at Psalm 47. This is our God. Oh, clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord most high is terrible. He is great. King over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob, whom he loved, Selah. 
Look at verse 7. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. God reigneth over the heathen. God sitteth upon the throne of his holiness. The princes of all the people are gathered together, even the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong unto God. He is greatly exalted. Uh, You know what? I think that we underestimate the majesty, power, and awfulness of our God. So this king... He really is an image of what a true king is, one that is not to be trifled with. Back to Daniel chapter 2. Again, the, the magicians are arguing with the king in verse 11, and it is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except, look at this, the gods whose dwelling is is not with flesh. So, here's what we have. Daniel chapter 2 is salient for understanding God's plan in history. As a matter of fact, what one does with Daniel 2 will determine whether he is premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial. What in the world does that mean? The millennium is the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on this earth. Although the word millennium never appears in the Scripture, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, of Jesus Christ, does six times in Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verse 2, Three, four, five, six, and seven. That describes the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. Millennium is from two Latin words, mill, that's a thousand, and annum, that's years, so a thousand years. So we talk about the millennium, that's what we mean. Premillennial, that is the teaching that Jesus returns before his thousand-year reign on earth. And that's the clear teaching of Scripture, if you have a literal view. There's another view, it's called postmillennial. Jesus Christ returns to reign on earth after mankind or the church has ushered in a thousand years of peace and prosperity. So this teaching is that we are already in the kingdom and that we are to conquer the world and bring peace to the world. How are we doing? And so this view right here is gaining in popularity like crazy right now. So I I quote Doug Wilson sometimes. That's what he believes. James White, the critic of the Bible, but defender of of orthodoxy, this is what he believes, post-millennial. They call it a a doctrine of victory, that we're going to proceed and proceed and proceed and ultimately win. But the Bible says evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The time time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, deceiving and being deceived. That's what the Bible says is where we're going, Postmillennialism is direct opposite of what the Bible says. Amillennial. That's the teaching. That's what the King James Bible translators believed. They thought that it was all spiritual. There was not really a thousand years. There is no millennium. Amillennial, there is no literal thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. He spiritually reigns in the hearts of Christians. Doesn't that sound nice? We're going to see whether or not that's true from the Scriptures. Usually, theological amillennialists are practical postmillennialists. They're still trying to spread the kingdom. So why did the Roman Catholic Church have the Crusades? They were trying to bring in the kingdom. They believed in a postmillennial or amillennial view. They believed it was their responsibility to conquer the world for Christ. Why did the Protestants and the Protestant Reformation, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, why did they kill people and try to take over ter- territories militarily for the Lord? Why did they do that? They believed it was their responsibility to subdue the earth and bring into captivity all of the nations so that Christ could return. Our theology has consequences. So it is vital to understand 
that this image that we're going to read about and its interpretation teach the devolution, not evolution, the devolution of human history. So let's look at this. So Daniel, they're going to kill all of the wise men. Daniel is one of the wise men. He goes to the king's leader and he, uh, or to the king's uh, man who's going to kill them and says, give me some time. Let me go to the Lord. I'll get your answer for you. Um, Let's look at verse 14. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which has gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and, sh- and, and that he would show the king the interpretation. But Daniel had faith before he went to the Lord. He said, God can do this. Then Daniel went into his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are the real names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are pagan names. These are their Jewish names. All right. Verse 18, that they would desire, look at what it says, mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision, and look at what Daniel does. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge unto them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might, and hast made known unto me now what the... what. We desired of thee, for thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Now, how, how gracious is Daniel? He could have wiped out all the competition right there. He didn't. He said, Destroy not the middle of verse 24. Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will... So remember, he's a slave. From He's been brought in, even though he's a wise man, of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. And the king answered and said unto Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, so that's under the authority of Baal, the false god. That's the name that the Babylonians gave Daniel. So, Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Now, listen to Daniel. So important. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. So, if we're going to understand why we approach the Bible, Daniel chapter 2 is the perfect example of it, because I want you to see something. The king had a dream of this image, and the king, in Daniel chapter 2, has this troubling dream, and he demands of his magicians and wise men an impossible task. By the way, I think that we ought to put a statue of me like that 
out in the parking lot? What do you think? Okay. Is that unbelievable? You know what that looks like? This, that particular image, all I can think about is, um, what was the one that would go like this? And I dream of genie. That, that's what that looks like right there. So Daniel demonstrates that only the God of Israel can tell both his forgotten dream and the future. Why? Because the text says, here's what, here's what Daniel says next. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. It's interesting. So here's what Satan can't do. Remember when Moses went into the Pharaoh and his staff turned into a snake and the magicians there did all of the same miracles that Moses did. Here, these magicians had an ability through Satan to do all kinds of things. But you know what Satan can't do? Satan doesn't know what's in your mind. He can't bring back a forgotten thought, and he certainly can't tell the future. But there's a God in heaven who can. This is what showed the difference. And this is what's vital. Notice what it says at the end of that verse. It says, what shall be in the latter days? So what this is all about, it begins with his kingdom, the kingdom that is present, and goes into the future. So, Daniel knew something the magicians and sorcerers could not know. Because Amos 3, 7 says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants and prophets. Whatever God is going to do, whatever God has planned, he's going to tell his prophets. Well, God certainly was not going to tell those magicians. He told Daniel, Amos 3, 8, The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken. Who can but prophesy? Only when God's put those words in your mouth. Only a prophet of the Bible. So, God through Daniel describes four kingdoms beginning with his. Remember, there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. So, what do we have? Let's look at this in the Bible. Where verse 28, we read that. Verse 29. As for thee, O king, my thoughts came into my mind upon, or thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass? Do you see that word? Hereafter. And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. So notice Daniel's humility. This is not me. I don't have this. This is God. Look at what he tells him, verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest and beheld a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass. I know these teenagers are thinking, he said belly. <laughs> that's, that's what the text says. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon the feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. 
Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away and no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. All right, so what is it? What is the chaff and the threshing floor? They would take the wheat, they'd put the wheat on a, on a hard-packed floor and let it dry, and then they would take a fan and blow it, and the shell would blow away. That's the chaff. So that's what, it's, that's, what that's speaking of. So then he gives an interpretation. What is the interpretation? The head of gold is the Babylonian Empire. That was the empire that this king was in, and that went from 605 B.C. until 539 B.C. What is Daniel prophesying here? The end of this kingdom, the head of gold. The breast and arms of silver. What is that speaking of? That's the next kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom. Remember the law of the Medes and Persians? That's from 539 B.C. to 331 B.C. what, What this prophecy is doing, it's directly outlining the next 900 years of Bible prophecy, or of, of, of uh, uh, Gentile existence. It's amazing. He's defining it. Then, his belly and thighs of brass. This is Greece. Goes from 30, 331 B.C. to 168 B.C. The next kingdom, his legs of iron. That's Rome. From 168 B.C. to 476 A.D. Now, remember, there's two legs. The one leg ends at four. The western leg ends at 476. The, the, the other leg is the eastern empire, the Ottoman empire. That lasts until 1453. But it's describing these great kingdoms that are going to come. So what do we have? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And this, you say, Pastor, you're talking about dispensationalism. We go to Daniel 2, looking at these kingdoms. This is going to demonstrate the difference between a postmillennial view and a premillennial view. Remember what we said. How you look at Daniel will determine how you read this passage or how you understand Bible prophecy. If these four kingdoms were physical kingdoms existing in history, then the fifth kingdom that is prophesied will exist in history also. Amen? So let me ask you a question. Did Babylon exist? You know, uh, Saddam Hussein was trying to rebuild Babylon. It existed. Did Persia? Persia still exists, but not in a world as a world power. Greece. Did Greece exist? Of course. The first fish fry was in Greece. That's, it's sad. It's just, it's just sad. Rome. Did Rome exist? Yes. So were they physical kingdoms? Were they earthly kingdoms? Well, then the kingdom, the fifth kingdom that is described must also be a physical kingdom. So, Daniel 2, 29. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. This is what's going to happen in the future. And if these are physical kingdoms, then the kingdom that will come in the future must also be a physical kingdom. Amen? This is a literal interpretation of Scripture. Why do we do what we do? This dream gives the basic outline of Gentile history for the next 900 years and then beyond to the tribulation. This time period is called the times of the Gentiles in Luke 21:24. That's really important because in Daniel, I'm sorry, in Romans, that all of this is going to happen until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. 
This Luke 24, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. All right, so we have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now, if God is promising a kingdom that's going to come, Satan is a liar and an imposter. He will attempt to establish, to establish his own kingdom. And so the Bible describes his feet. Don't those feet look lovely? His feet are part of iron and part of clay, miry clay. This is a one-world government that's coming under Antichrist. This is what's coming to the world. We see it being put together right now, right now. And it's so interesting how President Trump, the, the nationalist movements that are going on, the guy that was just elected in Argentina, the guy that is in Hungary, these people are standing against, they're trying to stand against this globalization and say, we do actually have a nation. All right? That's why these world powers hate it, because there's a one-world government coming under Antichrist. So we have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, but there's another one that he describes. What is that? That is those feet of miry clay, and that is the kingdom, the one-world government of the coming Antichrist. So this fifth kingdom is a false satanic kingdom that has only one destiny. What is that destiny? What will God do with this false kingdom? Daniel 2.34 Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and brake them to pieces. Here's what's coming. You picture this stone cut out without hands. Comes down and destroys that idol. Daniel 2.35 Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this is a prophecy of something that's going to happen. But notice what happened. How many of you know that gold is better than silver? And silver is better than brass. And brass is better than iron. And iron is certainly better than whatever those feet are made of. Right? Post-millennialism is an evolutionary view of the world. We're going to make it better and better and better. And the simple fact is, Christianity did make the world better for a while. Now the world is returning to paganism. And it's getting worser and worser. This is a prophecy that there is a kingdom that's coming. So this stone comes and it hits the feet and then it all crumbles, and it's dissolved into nothingness. Well, what's next then? Daniel 2.44. And in the days of these kings, so there's going to be false kings that rise up, ten kings that rise up. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. We just read about it in Psalm 47. And it shall stand forever. So what do we have? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. If these four kingdoms were physical kingdoms existing in history, then the fifth kingdom will exist in history also. This view of history and the future, it informs our mission at Grace Baptist Church. Daniel 2.47, the king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Our God is a revealer of secrets. 
and he has revealed that to anyone who believes the Bible. This is the theme of the Bible. This is the theme verse, the key verse of Scripture, Zechariah 14, 9. And the Lord, talking about Jesus, shall be king over all the earth. And that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. How many of you believe that's really going to happen? So this is the foundation of what we believe. But how does that affect our mission? Well, Colossians 2, 3 says, Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, in him, Colossians 2, 8 says, filleth, uh, uh, verse 9, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All wisdom, knowledge, all these secrets, they are in Christ. So how does this inform our mission? Well, first of all, Jesus is the king. I'm not in charge. You're not in charge. The president's not in charge. The Antichrist is not in charge. Who's in charge? Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, we're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. He's our king. So what does that do? He's coming to sit on his throne, a literal physical throne. Matthew 28, 18 says this, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Has Jesus Christ assumed that power yet? No. And yet, he has the authority to order us. Is, can, let me just ask you a question. Is Jesus your king? Would you raise your hand? Then, does Jesus have the right to chop you into pieces and make your house a dunghill? Seriously. Does he have the right to do that? How many of you are glad he's not? What's he going to do to the world when he comes back? Worse than that. What? He's terrible. To his enemies. So he has this power, and he told us to do something. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The things that's going to happen hereafter, the things that's going to be in the latter days, everything that, that Daniel was talking about, Jesus Christ actually quotes that same book in Matthew chapter 24 and says, this is all that's going to happen. This informs our mission. We have a job to do based on what the Bible says. And a lot of people try and explain it away. So, only God knows the future, and he told us to go, preach, and teach. I don't know who's going to win the next election. I don't know. What am I supposed to do? Go, preach, and teach. I don't know what's going to happen with the world economy. What am I supposed to do? Go, preach, and teach. Amen? I don't know what my job's going to be in the next month. Go, preach, and teach. I don't know who I'm going to marry. Go, preach, and teach. For some of you, it's hopeless. Hey, look around. Some of these guys that are married, if those dudes can get those ladies, you can too, okay? I mean, not that lady. Don't do that. That's bad. <laughs> so only God knows the future, and he told us to go preach and teach. So what are we going to do? Everybody, what are we going to do? Until Jesus Christ comes back. That's what we're supposed to do. So dispensationalism informs our evangelism because of who Jesus is, because he knows what's happening in the future, and he's going to establish his kingdom. We don't spend our time feeding the poor. We don't spend our time building houses for people. We spend our time giving people the gospel. And if we can build houses for people and feed them, also praise God. But that's not the primary mission. The primary mission is go preach and teach. Our dispensationalism affords our evangelism. Is that all? Isaiah chapter 19 is an amazing passage. 
Isaiah 19.22 says, And the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite, oh my, and heal it. And they shall return even to the Lord. And he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. Verse 24, in that day, oh, does that give us a time frame? In that day, that's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the thousand-year reign of Christ because a thousand years is as a day. In that day shall Israel, look it, be the third with Egypt and with Assyria? Even a blessing in the midst of the land. Verse 25, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless. Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. How many of you know that we as dispensationalists focus on Israel? God focuses on these people too. By the way, I might have it here. Yeah. Our dispensational view requires us to read Egypt. What do you think Egypt is talking about? Egypt. And what's Assyria talking about? It's, this is a picture of God's people. No, it's talking about Egypt, and it's talking about Assyria, and it's talking about Israel. That's our literal view. So what does this mean for us? Egypt enslaved God's people. Assyria tortured and captured. Assyria invented crucifixion. Why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. They were horrible to God's people. So what do we learn? Dispensationalism informs our forgiveness. See, we as a people, we can't hate other people groups. I'm American. How many of you know Jesus is not American? How many of you know Jesus was not white. I looked at Mackenzie. Jesus did not have Mackenzie's coloring. This focusing on our nation. Now, as a nation, we ought to have borders and focus on our nation. But listen, listen, we're not supposed to go out in the world and make people Americans. We're supposed to go out and make them Christians. You see, see a difference? See, there are people that hate other people groups. They hate. I, I talked about the Muslim religion last week. And, and I was very frustrated with myself because I don't think I said this. We don't hate Muslims. We hate Islam. We don't hate Muslims. That, see, is Assyria Muslim? Is Egypt Muslim? Somehow God... He's going to punish them, but he's going to forgive them, and he's going to heal them. So what should our spirit be? We should love the Egyptians. We should love the Assyrians. We should love these people. Can you be honest with me? How many of you, that's a struggle for you? Would you raise your hand? That's, that's a struggle for you. And this is why we need God. This is why we need the Holy Spirit and a biblical view of the world. Dispensationalism informs our forgiveness. So let me ask you a question. Who or what do you need to forgive? Let's be honest. Let's confess. Let's just be really honest. How many of you, forgiveness is not your best trait? Would you raise your hand? Hold them up. This is fun. Don't mess with these people. 
James Knox sent me a meme this week, and it was these old people talking to each other. It was Methuselah's wife bringing up something he had done 721 years ago. It's <laughs> fantastic. Who or what do you need to forgive? Remember the death of Stephen? We've been preaching it. As he was being stoned to death, look at what he prayed. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Unforgiveness is a sin that not only hurts you, it defiles those around you. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. It's actually supposed to be 14 and 15. Sorry about that on the slide. So look at verse 14, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness. You know, isn't it interesting? The world wants peace, but they don't want holiness. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, thereby many be defiled. So those of you who have gone through pre-marriage counseling with me, we always look at this passage, and I always ask this question, and I'll ask the church. How many of you know someone that's full of bitterness and it's defiled the entire extended family? How many of you know someone like that? Well, then don't be that. How do you keep from being bitter? You must forgive. You must forgive. Ephesians 4.32 And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That same God that's going to forgive Egypt. That same God that's going to forgive Assyria. That same God that's going to forgive Israel. He has forgiven you. If you've come to him for forgiveness. And that's the model of how we are to behave. And so, our dispensationalism informs our forgiveness. But this means our dispensationalism informs our politics. It's, a, it's an election year. My phone is getting blown up. You, you'll know, I'm really important. Nikki Haley sent me a text the other day. How many of you are getting all those things? Right? But this is a political year. I'm going to need to address some political things from the pulpit. But our view of Scripture and our dispensationalism, it informs our view on politics. We have no interest in conquering the world. Amen? We have no interest in loving the world. See, you only want to capture that which you love. And what are we supposed to do? 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why do people conquer other nations? Because they covet what other nation has. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. So, if we believe the Bible, we must evangelize. If we believe the Bible, we must baptize. If we believe the Bible, we must forgive. And if we believe the Bible, we must make Christ our king, not politics, our king. Dispensationalism informs our evangelism. Dispensationalism informs our forgiveness. Dispensationalism informs our politics. Dispensationalism. Our interpretation informs our mission. 
Why do we do what we do? Because it's what the Bible says. That's what we do. Let's all stand together. I know we're a little longer than normal today, but this is vital that we understand this. And so everybody, I know that you're thinking about packing up and getting out of here, but think about this before you go. What the Bible says about you is true also. And the Bible says that we have all sinned, and because we have sinned, we've come short of the glory of God. All of us. There's none righteous, no, not one. That's what the Bible says. You can't go to heaven unless you're righteous. You can't get into heaven unless you're righteous. And you can't be righteous because none of you are righteous. I'm not righteous. That means we need a different righteousness. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he wants to give you as a gift. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't be good enough to get it. It must be received as a gift. And you get that gift simply by asking him in faith, believing him to give you that gift. If you're here today, you've probably learned a bunch of words you've never heard before, and this is defining things for our church. The most important thing you need to know is that the Bible is true. The Bible says that we are all sinners and we all deserve to go to a Christless, fiery, eternal hell. That's what this says. But that's why Jesus Christ came. He came so that you don't have to. He came and died on the cross. And on that cross, God treated Jesus the way I deserve to be treated. So he can treat me the way Jesus deserves to be treated. That's the gift he wants to give you. It's not about your religion. It's not about being Baptist, Catholic, Presbyterian, Mormon. It's not about that. It's about believing in Jesus Christ. But not just any Jesus Christ, the Christ of the Bible. That's the heartbeat. And then, if we believe what we have said today, because all we have said is what the Bible says, right? Because what we believe about the Bible, we believe it. It's because what the Bible says about the Bible. That's what we've looked at today. And if that's true, that ought to affect our evangelism. How many of you are going to try and tell somebody about Jesus? This class, it's vital for you to learn how to do that. How many of you are going to forgive? We can't have a church full of bitter, angry people, and we certainly can't have a Christian culture that hates people out there. We can't, you won't reach people that you hate. And then beyond that, it'll affect our politics. We need to understand that all of this is going to go away. The United States of America is not in Bible prophecy, and yet we have a responsibility, but we need to be careful about what we hope for. Amen? It informs our politics. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. Lord, help this message to sink into our ears and our hearts and affect our behaviors.